God's design for family life, ladies and gentlemen. I read this pastor or this passage uh, with Pastor Chris a couple of weeks ago as we were talking about worship for this morning. And when I finished the passage, we both just sat there staring at the floor for a moment, and then Chris stood up. He said, "Good luck with that," and he left. <laughs> so. Let's see if we can't find just a little bit of good news in this passage. This summer, we're talking about discipleship. We're doing so through these lectionary texts of the Gospel of Matthew, and sometimes when you read the lectionary, you get stuck with a passage like this. In the last couple of weeks, we've spent some time talking about the actual call, the call to discipleship that we receive. Uh, Jesus extends this call to people. Jesus still extends this call to us. Whatever walk of life we might find ourselves to be in, Jesus calls us to discipleship. In this gospel, he called tax collectors, he called Roman collaborators, he called Jewish zealots, he called fishermen, he called people from all walks of life. And as you read the gospel, you find that there are women that follow Jesus. There are children that flock to him and there are crowds and crowds of people in need of healing and good news. And last week, we talked about these crowds, and we talked about the community of disciples that Jesus calls together. Jesus calls these individuals to be disciples, but he calls them to gather together into a community, and then Jesus sends forth this community to meet the needs of the world around them. This community of disciples is called into being to make the world a place of shalom. We also noted last week that our own tradition, the tradition of the United Methodist Church understands itself to be a participant in this calling, that we see ourselves as disciples, that our mission as United Methodists is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world that we live in. And so we've talked about the call. We've talked a little bit about who we are and why we're here. And this week, we're gonna move from the call itself to the actual work of discipleship. What it means to actually be a disciple of this Jesus. And so today I wanna talk about what this word disciple really means. This word disciple, it can be a little complicated. On the one hand, for those of us that are newer to this path, this path of following Jesus, or for those of us that are just wanting to learn a little bit more about what this path entails, this word disciple might have been heard, but left a little ambiguous. It might be a little unclear. But for those of us that have been on this path for a while, we may just take the word for granted. We've got ideas of what it means to be a disciple, and so we don't really think about it. I have this pocket dictionary uh, of theological terms that I find to be really, really helpful. But when I tried to find the word disciple in this dictionary, it took the whole concept for granted. Disciple, discipleship, not to be found in this dictionary of theological terms. But we can also go the other direction. We can tend to create definitions that start to get really, really complicated. We start to list attributes of a disciple and what we think they need to believe and what we think they need to say and what we think they need to do, and the list can start to get long. There have been a lot of different ways that we have talked about this word and about discipleship, and most of them are helpful. 
But today, I kind of want to start in the beginning. I want to start with what this word meant to those that tell this story, to those that heard this story and those that spread this story first. So what did this word disciple mean to those people? It makes for a really simple definition, actually. And it's found here in the passage that we read this morning. In verse 25, we read, it is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher. In the time of Jesus and as this form of Judaism grow, a disciple was simply someone that continued to try to be more and more like their rabbi. This word discipleship then just means the action, the process by which people become like their rabbis. The definition is really simple. The execution, however, is where we find the challenge. The way that this played out in those days was a full life devotion to discipleship. A disciple was not near, merely a student. A disciple was not just a learner. A just, disciple wasn't even just a follower. A disciple dedicated their life to following for a purpose. A disciple wanted not to just know what the rabbi knew, not to just absorb what the rabbi taught, but the disciple wanted to become like the rabbi. A disciple wanted to be just like the rabbi. And so the disciple would follow so closely. They'd watch all of the habits. They'd watch all of the actions. They'd absorb all of the words in an effort to imitate and to be like this rabbi, especially when it came to the rabbi's relationships. The rabbi's relationship with God was to be imitated. And so the disciples might say something like, teach us to pray. And the rabbi's relationship with people was to be imitated, and so the disciples might ask, who is my neighbor? This is the idea that Paul calls to mind as he writes to the, first Corinthians, or to the Corinthians in his first letter to them. He says, imitate me as I imitate the Christ. It is enough for a disciple to be like the rabbi. A couple of months ago, I shared a phrase with you that I discovered that I really liked. It was written by a man named Dr. James Edwards, who's from my hometown of Spokane. He wrote that a wrong view of messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. If we're to know how to be a disciple, then we should know who exactly this messiah is. And in this gospel, the gospel that we're going through this summer, the gospel of Matthew, the messiah is God's agent, God's agent of liberation, God's agent of redemption. We talked a little bit about this narrative path, about the path that Matthew takes throughout this gospel. And we saw that when we get a little bit of a higher view, a little higher altitude to look at the gospel, it may help us understand some particular passages a little bit better. So this week, again, a higher altitude can help us uh, see a little bit more about who Matthew says this Messiah is. This week, we look at the gospel of Matthew as a whole. The whole narrative of this gospel is built around five central blocks of teaching, five sets of instruction that come from Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is the first and is the most well-known 
And our passage today comes from the middle of this second block of teaching, and it's often called the missionary discourse. And through the rest of the Gospels, there are three more sets of instruction that run all the way to right before the beginning of the Passion story. Matthew shapes his whole narrative around these five central sets of instruction. Does anybody have any guesses why Matthew might find five major sets of instruction important? Does the number five remind anybody of anything? The Torah. Well said, Pastor Chris. The Torah, God's instructions to the newly called nation of Israel. This Torah contains five sets of instruction, contains five books of the Bible, and it tells the story of liberation, the story of God's people being freed from their enslavement to the empire. And so Matthew uses this same structure. This Jesus, according to Matthew, is the new Moses, the new giver of Torah. Jesus is the one that takes the people out of their oppression. And those people are now the liberated and the covenant people of God called to participate in this story of liberation. But the thing that we find about the pursuit of liberation, about the pursuit of justice, whether it's with Moses or whether it's with Jesus or whether it's with the oppressed today, is that the pursuit of liberation comes with opposition. Moses had to deal with Pharaoh and with the Egyptian armies and with his own people grumbling against him and the attacks of rival tribes. And Jesus, Jesus was hung on a cross, not because he fed some people, not because he was a nice man, but because his message, his proclamation threatened the systems of power around him. Our passage this morning is a passage that helps us to understand that when we seek to imitate this rabbi Jesus, when we fight with the marginalized or for the marginalized, when we seek justice for those that are helpless and harassed, when we stand in solidarity with those that are discarded, division and pain will come. Often it's those that are closest to us that don't understand why we do what we do. In this second block of teaching here in chapter 10, Jesus is preparing his disciples to face this opposition. He's given them a message to proclaim from rooftops, but he knows that this message will cause them to be separated from their communities and from their loved ones. This chapter begins with Jesus giving some very simple and direct instructions to the 12 that he was sending out. And he calls them sheep among wolves. But right about where our passage begins this morning, right about chapter or verse 24, the language in this passage shifts. The gospel writer has Jesus uh, stop using second person language. Jesus was directly addressing the 12 disciples. But right about here, the language shifts to the third person. The language opens up. And it offers instruction not just to the 12, but to Matthew's audience. This audience that this teaching is intended for grows from the 12 to those that read it in Matthew's first century community 
and those of us that read the passage today. What we find when we read this is that this passage is not a declaration that the king of peace comes bearing a sword like the Roman king. It sounds like it, but this is not the Pax Romana. This is not peace through power and might. This passage is instead a word of comfort. It's a word of comfort to those that face schism for following a crucified Messiah. Jesus knows that following him often comes at a real price. And this is a word that the, for those that follow so well, for those that are so much like their rabbi that they take up their crosses in the work of liberation. Jesus says to them, says to us, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's knowledge, and even the hairs of your head are counted. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You are more valuable than many sparrows. This text, this passage is brutal, but it's also important because it acknowledges the reality of the world in which it was written. It's important because it acknowledges the reality of the world in which we read it today. It acknowledges that the message that Jesus brings is a message that sometimes ignites violence, but it still offers divine confidence to those that faithfully proclaim it. I don't know that there's a better recent example of this divine confidence than what we witnessed in the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., on April 3rd, 1968, Dr. King stood in front of a crowd in, Mem in Memphis. It was a crowd of helpless and harassed people, and Dr. King offered them good news. Now, I'm going to read you some of the words that he wrote in the speech, the final words of this speech, but I encourage you to look up the whole speech and watch it online. As Dr. King closed the speech, these words witness to the courage and the comfort that comes from this passage that we read today. Dr. King said, and then I got into Memphis. Some began to say the threats or talk about the threats that were out. What would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. He's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. This was Dr. King's last public speech. Just the next day was the day that he was assassinated. Dr. King was a disciple 
of the Messiah that works for liberation. King was continually becoming more and more and more like his rabbi. King and the community of disciples that gathered around King transformed this world. There are very few of us here today that face the sword that Martin Luther King Jr. faced. But we too are disciples of the same Messiah. We too seek to be like this Christ, like the one that stands and works for liberation. We're called together and sent to stand with those who face violence, even if we do not. So in some ways, this call to discipleship really is simple. We just have to be like the rabbi. But the call to discipleship can also bring us to places of confrontation, to pain, to rupture in our families, in our families of faith, and in our communities. Jesus wouldn't have had to say, don't be afraid, so often if this good news didn't come with the challenge. And so may we be like our rabbi. May we be like our rabbi in loving God and in loving neighbor and in loving this created cosmos that is filled with the divine spirit. May we hear these words of comfort and these words of promise and may we have courage. May we hear the call of God and may we also hear the call of those around us. What we hear in the dark, may we proclaim in the light. And may we be like our rabbi, being and making disciples for the transformation of the world. In the name of the God who comforts us, and our Rabbi Jesus, and the Spirit who reunites us all. Amen.